What is up, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Browns Note Podcast. This is episode 39, and we are uh, in our first postseason, I guess, postseason podcast of this, not what is the 2015 season, but we are now, of course, into the year 2016, and as we have been on oh so many occasions uh, over the past decade, we're going to be talking about a new coach and a new uh, personnel structure and all that stuff. And fortunately, all of it's happened already, so we actually do have a few things to talk about. Well, not all of it. There's still one big hire to be made, but there's at least some idea about the directions that could go. And and uh, that gives us the opportunity here to just talk a little bit about the coach and about what it might mean for the squad over the course of this offseason and going forward. So anyway, that's my roundabout way of introducing this podcast. This is Ryan Burns coming to you from Dog Pound West in Orange County, California. Joining me now from the heart of Ohio, my good man, Mr. Brendan Leister. How you doing, man? Doing good. How about you? Uh, you know, really busy, so I'm glad we're able to find some time here and just chat for a few minutes about what has happened since the last time we spoke. And the last time we spoke, of course, oh, and if you would, folks, be so kind to follow Brendan at Brendan Leister on Twitter. You can find me at FTBL Sickness, and the podcast here is at The Browns Note. Uh, but when last we spoke, uh, way back in week 17 of episode 38, you know, it was becoming pretty apparent that, that Pettin was likely gone. And, um, you know, the season was over and it was trash. And quite frankly, most of us were skeptical that there was going to be a lot of, uh, you know, really positive news over the course of the off season. You know, a lot of us felt like, well, we're, we're very likely to be starting this whole shebang over again, meaning coach, GM, quarterback. And that appears to be a, you know, very likely to be the case, but I will say that the mood has certainly lifted, you know, the way, the way they've gone about it has been by and large, well-received, well-perceived, whichever way you want to put that. And, and I think people at least have a sense, um, you know, fans of the team, we're going to always want to feel this way, but I, I think there's a little more genuine feeling like, well, they might actually be onto something here. Now there are concerns and there are some voices that are probably more concerned than others. And we'll talk about some of those concerns about structure and authority here and there. Um, but anyway, this is a, here's what's changed over the first 10 days of the off season podcast. And frankly, there's a good bit of it. So let's get right into it. Obviously the big, uh, the big day at the end of the season came down black Monday, everybody got fired and, I, I won't say it came as a total shock. I was a little surprised that it was everybody. I sort of thought it might be one or the other and give the other guy a chance to roll through. But as I said at the time, I could have made an equally plausible and persuasive argument that you should fire either everyone or no one or just one guy. So, you know, like I say, it couldn't have been all that surprising when Ray Farmer and Mike Pettin were shown the door. But almost immediately that led to all the questions of, okay, well, what is it going to look like? And why is it going to be different this time, Jimmy Haslam? Because you promised us just five short months ago that you had no intention of blowing this particular group up, you know, anytime soon. And here you are having just blown it up, and you've got to persuade everyone that you know what you're doing. Well, I don't know if he's persuaded everyone that he knows what he's doing, but I think it would be pretty hard to argue that he doesn't have a specific idea in mind and a plan to execute on that, whether that all ends up working out in terms of wins, losses, Super Bowls, and such remains to be seen. And I'm with everybody else uh, that has a healthy skepticism about anything that Haslam is going to do at this juncture. But I will say, the hire of Dee Podesta when it came down was fascinating to me. And, and 
I know that there's been a, and I'll stop rambling here in a minute, Brendan, because I want to get your reaction as well. But I know there's been a, a reaction that in a lot of corners to me displays that you really don't know who Paul D. Podesta is. If your view of Paul D. Podesta is, oh, great, the baseball guy, or he's the guy Jonah Hill played. And granted, some of those were funny the way you put them. So I'm not, I'm not putting the jokes all to pasture. But the point being, is a much more complicated guy than that, a much more experienced guy than that, and quite frankly, uh, had some football experience. Not a ton of it, not in the NFL. Um, but here's a guy who had been a wide receiver in college, Harvard, by the way. Here's a guy who had worked in the Baltimore front office of their CFL franchise, uh, which did, in fact, win a great cup. So he'd been around winning football. Um, you know, baseball guy or not, whatever you want to call him. This isn't some guy who just walked in off the diamond. Um, This, to me, was what made me actually sit up and take notice of what Haslam is at least attempting to do this time around. Um, This this was what makes it different to me. Going out and finding and hiring Hugh Jackson, to me, uh, while it's indicative of some other things, is not particularly you know, risky or innovative behavior. This is a guy that everybody thought was going to be one of the top candidates. So to me, the big move so far is the hire of Dee Podesta. And I'll have a few more thoughts on why that is. But give me your first thoughts about the way that the organization appears to be going and, uh, and whatever it is that sort of made you sit up and take notice this time around. To start off, um, I just think it's exciting. You know, they've hired and promoted smart people, Sashi Brown, Paul DePodesta. Um, I agree with you that that move to get DePodesta was very like, fascinating. Um, I wonder if he just saw the NFL as kind of a new challenge that he wanted to see what he could do with. You know, he saw the Browns as an opportunity. I'm sure that a lot of NFL teams probably didn't even have him on their radar. So I think that's that's promising that the Browns reached out to him and pursued him the way that they did and even hired him. Um, I'm, in, I'm interested to see the way that, that things change now. Um, they talked a lot about being aligned between uh, Brown, DePodesta, and Hugh Jackson, and that really needs to happen because obviously under Petten and Farmer, there was very little alignment uh, different people wanting different things all the time. You just can't win that way. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, I'm interested to see the way that their de- decision-making processes change um, rather than, you know, giving a lot of money to like Tremont Williams, for example, who's an aging veteran corner who I thought played okay when Joe Hayden was in there. But think about, you know, paying a guy like that all that money when you could have just re-signed Buster Screen, maybe gone a little bit harder after him. or um, you know, just sign some lesser paid players that could give you the same production. I think those are some examples of things that they could change. Dwayne Bowe is another example of a guy that they paid that was older. So I think some of those processes are going to change when it comes to the way that they deal with um, paying players coming into their prime, uh, aging vets, that type of thing. I think in the draft, it's going to be interesting to follow the way that they, um, the way that they prioritize certain positions. Uh, whether it be, you know, a pass rusher, a quarterback, um, like running back position. I think that's going to be fascinating just to see types of players that they take when they take them. Uh, we can kind of look at Hugh Jackson's past a little bit, the types of players that he always liked, but it'll be interesting, interesting to see the way that he works with them and 
I'm also really excited to see who they hire as as a GM candidate because I've heard um, that a very qualified person from within the organization might be promoted, and that's exciting to me. It would be, yeah. You know, I I've never been of the impression that they were just totally clueless and and in the scouting department and particularly when you start to hear the stories of how the 2014 draft played out, for example, you start to hear, had they just stuck to the board, the Browns would have ended up with two damn good players and we'd all be sitting here talking about something different. So I think, uh, I, I, I agree with you. It's going to be fascinating to see number one, whether they continue to be inclined to bring guys up from within the organization, like they've done with Sashi Brown. And then it'll be, it'll be fascinating to watch how the addition of this, element to the organization it's not like they weren't doing analytics and all that before they were and most NFL teams have some variant of that but um you know it it sounds like they're making it a a pillar of their philosophy and so it's going to be interesting to see how that will uh, how that will translate into actual moves both uh you know on and off the field You, you mentioned a couple things I wanted to touch on um, number one, you know, Deep Podesta sort of answered one of your questions. He, he said that he's always wanted to be in the NFL, and, and quite frankly, the Browns were a place he'd always had some, some emotion for. He, he started his baseball career with the Indians and uh, I guess had always sort of looked with envy at the NFL across the street, hoping to, or just down the street as the case may be, hoping to, uh, hoping to someday get involved with that. Um, yeah, I'm going to forget what the second point is, but you started to talk about alignment and, and, you know, that in the Haslam lexicon, alignment appears to have, you know, replaced candidly. Um, but frankly, that's just fine with me. Alignment is something I believe deeply in, and it's not just, um, you know, it is very much a, a business school buzzword. This is a, this is one of those things that you hear in your first year of business school about things that are critical to organizational behavior. And and for those of you that have, have heard me on the other podcast, the Football Sickness Podcast, and I've probably done it here too, but I do tend to spout about that concept, the idea of organizational behavior being critical to winning, meaning you have to have an organization, number one, where literally everybody's going in the same direction, um, and number two, that all that stuff takes time and consistency to establish and maintain and to learn how to sustain. And that's why I argue in favor of things like stability and patience and all that. But to me, to hear that from Haslam and then to sort of get a sense of who Sashi Brown is and who um, Hugh Jackson is, you know, there's clearly a bunch of drive there. So I'll be curious to see whether they can maintain that same alignment, you know, when the chips are down and when the bullets are flying and whichever one of those metaphors you prefer and all that. Um, because it's all nice and good to say that in the, in the press conference in January. It's a whole other deal when we get to the room in April and somebody's got to make a call. So that, that, to me, the proof in all of this stuff will, of course, be in the pudding. But those were the things that I took out of that, that first bit, that going back to the – but going back to the Deep Podesta hire, which I wanted to do before we moved into Hugh Jackson a little bit more. I'm, I have no idea, frankly, how he's going to implement what we're all going to generally refer to without knowing specifically what we're talking about as analytics. Um, I know how he did it in baseball. At least I have a general sense of that. Um, sort of a Bill James protege got under Billy Bean, convinced Billy Bean that, look, there are these inefficiencies in the market and we don't have to do this the way that baseball has always done it. And, you know, we can make some decisions based on the odds, basically. I mean, I'm, I'm vastly oversimplifying, but 
we can make some decisions based on historical data is a better way of putting it, but that's more or less the same thing. Um, that will increase our chances of winning, especially under the constraint of not being a big market team in Major League Baseball where there's no even playing field. Now here, we've got the even playing field. You've got a salary cap. You've got all the various revenue-sharing vehicles of the NFL. And so to me, I think what you're looking for in and of itself is just different than what you're looking for in baseball. Leaving aside for a moment the difference of sort of the statistical natures of the two sports, which anybody who knows anything about both is going to tell you, they're, they're just totally different games because you can isolate individual performance much more easily in baseball. Um, but that said, inefficiency is inefficiency, and personnel tendencies and historical data do reveal trends. And, and to me, you're a fool if you just totally ignore those things. And so the idea that we ought to be fearful of the idea of, of analytics, um, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Coaches believe in analytics. They just don't know that they call it analytics half the time. You know, when they're sitting there with their card and they've got the card that says down and distance, second and six or third and nine or third and two, as the case may be, these are the plays we go to. Well, there's a reason those are the plays you go to. And the reason is, based on your historical data, which in many cases for coaches is hunches, but nevertheless, it's still the same concept. We're going to make this call. That's all analytics really is, is, is studying data, understanding what human reaction to that data has typically been, and trying to find ways to take advantage of those facts. And so if you think about analytics like that, as opposed to, oh God, we're going to use statistics to decide everything. Um, to me, I think you get a better idea, number one, of what De Podesta is about, and number two, what we're actually talking about when we get into this concept of analytics. Um, what I leave out? <laughs> oh, yeah, I agree with this. And, and also, another thing is, you know, people can complain about the whole statistics thing all they want, but if you look at a lot of the picks they've made the past couple of years, it was all these guys that had all this college production, you know, like, they, they would take guys – I mean, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but just about all their picks had a lot of, you know, yards or touchdowns or interceptions or sacks. Like, they were obviously looking at these things. I just think that analytics is more of a way of applying it to the film rather than just looking at statistics and saying, oh, this guy was productive. You can look at it and say, okay, well, he had, you know, 18 sacks, just, just a number I'm throwing out there, but 11 of them he was unblocked and five of them he was going against a tackle that he is never going to play in the NFL. So that's a way of quantifying the data, looking at it from a different angle and saying, okay, well, you had all these sacks, but compared to this other guy that had, you know, 15 of them and they were all against good competition and none of them were unblocked, then obviously that other player that has 15 is a much more qualified productive player when we look at it from that point of view. I feel so like I think we're talking about that's Joey Bosa. example. <laughs> oh, no, actually, I'm just giving, I'm just throwing numbers out there. Bosa didn't even lead his team in sacks. <laughs> but, no, uh, no, I know. Yeah, that's uh, just an example. Yeah, and, and to me, that's the thing is it's a, it's a way of better understanding and gathering information that is at your disposal. That's really all it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that makes all the sense in the world. Uh, now, mm-hmm. it's up to the coach to wisely employ that using his football knowledge as a buffer or as a check and a balance, right? It's up to the personnel guy to do the same thing in terms of being 
you know, the lead scout and sort of the lead voice in terms of player acquisition. And so to me, I just don't view this as, okay, the Browns are now some, you know, they've become the question mark as to whether or not analytics, you know, they're the referendum is the word I was looking for, on whether or not analytics, quote unquote, can work in the NFL. There's just no doubt in, there should be no doubt in your mind that analytics can, has, and always will work in the NFL. It's just a matter of how people employ the information and whether or not um, they're adept at it. So, I mean, you look at a guy like Belichick, he's adept at it. That's why he wins. You know, he knows what down mm-hmm. and distance tendencies are. He knows all that stuff. That's all analytics. So, yeah, you know, w- I have you, another thing to say. Yeah, do it. That okay. Sorry for interrupting. But, uh, yeah, like an example of that would be, I'm sure that when Belichick goes into a game, for example, he knows the exact percentages of what coverages the other team runs right. on specific downs, what, how often he, they run power, how often they run counter on this down, how often they throw short of the sticks on this down, what their percentages are when it comes to uh, going for it on fourth down, um, onside kicks. I'm sure that he has, he has it all laid out, percentages for how often they do all these different things. And that's another example of quantifying data using analytics to your advantage. Yep. And, and there are all sorts of examples of it. And so to me, where it becomes fascinating is going to be in terms of player acquisition. And so I, I, I don't want to speculate on all that because I just don't know. Um, I can give a couple of examples, I think, of how it has been used successfully in the NFL already. Um, the Seattle Seahawks are big believers in height, weight, speed measurements, right? Um, they are not going to take a corner who's under a certain height. They are not going to take a corner who can't run a certain speed. Period. End of story. Don't care what the film shows. That's the end of it. Um, they've done pretty well for themselves with that philosophy. So there's one example. Um, you know, I'm blanking on the other one. It's too early in the morning for oh, me to be trying to I can to think of another one. Yeah, do it. Because my, my stories keep yeah. disappearing on me. Okay, so an example would be, uh, I think when the Patriots started employing the 3-4 defense, most of the NFL was running a 4-3. So they decided, okay, well, there's a market inefficiency there. Most of these teams are avoiding these tweener outside linebackers, these uh, stout nose tackles, these tall, you know, six-foot-five, five techniques that that have long arms. So we're going to play a 3-4 defense, and we're going to take all these guys where the other teams wouldn't dream of taking them. So then they end up with this team with all these great talents that they took, you know, in the fourth, fifth, sixth round, for example, when the other teams weren't even thinking about taking those players because they didn't fit their scheme, you know, per se. And you know, so that's a prime example of it. You know, you could stay in that same organization and flip sides of the ball and talk about what they did with the tight end position about five years ago or yep, however many years exactly. ago it was. When everybody is trying to figure out, okay, how do I get an offensive edge? Bill Belichick put Gronk and Aaron Hernandez out there uh, and started just, yeah, I was going to use a really unfortunate term there given the, uh, given the entirety of that, that story, but really going through defenses with two tight end sets and creating all sorts of mismatch problems because people had to account for the fact that two tight ends could mean anything. And that concept has now been extended into running back wide receiver hybrid type players. And, and mm-hmm. so there's absolutely a place for this in personnel acquisition, in terms of scheme, in terms of in-game strategy, like, like you talked about. I, I will be shocked if the Browns aren't one of the more frequent go-for-two 
teams in the NFL next year, but I could be all wrong about that. But that seems to me the direction they're going. Um, there was one more point I wanted to add about Deep Podesta, just in case others don't listen to you know every football podcast on the market as religiously as I do. Um, the Ross Tucker football podcast is one that I think is a must listen. He's got great guests all the time, and he's got weekly guests that are really, to me, I, I learn a lot listening, particularly to Greg Cosell for X's and O's stuff and for player evaluation, then also to Andrew Brandt for business of football type stuff. And Brandt was on this week, or I guess might have even been last Wednesday, um, talking about analytics and what it meant and, and how to use it. And he was talking about Deep Podesta in particular, and he said, given what the Browns have been doing the past several years in terms of all the turnover and constantly hiring and firing their executives and coaches, it probably took a great deal to get Paul Deep Podesta out of the Mets front office to come to Cleveland. I mean, I'm not sure it would have taken him a huge amount to go to the NFL, uh, but the kind of security and the kind of contract he had to have gotten to make that jump, I mean, I agree with Brent here. I think it had to have been substantial. And so I, I think the idea that Sashi Brown is going to be the one wielding a ton of power, I, I, I'm going to be fascinated to watch how this all sort of plays out because obviously Brown, De Podesta, and now Hugh Jackson are all going to be um, reporting directly to Haslam, which, you know, in theory means they're all equally powerful. Uh, but I got to think it took something to get De Podesta out of there. And so it's going to be interesting to see kind of, you know, when the chips fall, how that's going to go down. Um, let's talk head coaches. Uh, there were a number of candidates, seven, according to the team. I suspect there were some informal reach outs to even more. Um, let, let's start with the guys they didn't hire, uh, or at least a couple of them. Were you surprised that we didn't hear more about Chip Kelly in this mix? I was a little bit surprised, but at the same time, it doesn't surprise me too much because it seems like Haslam would be kind of against going a guy going with a guy right now that's so set in his ways sort of and, and Chip Kelly strikes me as a guy that's kind of that way set in his ways um, he's open-minded about things he believes in but I would say that he's probably closed-minded about other people's ideas at times and I don't think that that works very well in the structure that they're trying to employ so while at first I was kind of surprised that his name wasn't brought up as much as I thought it would be um, as the process went on, it became clearer and clearer that they probably didn't even look into him at all. Yeah, and and I agree exactly with your analysis there. I think it's a I think it's a personality thing. It's a it, Chip needs everything his way, and I'm fine with that if that's what your organization wants to do. But it's pretty evident that that's not what Jimmy Haslam has in mind in terms of a structure. And I, I mean. Assuming the thought even crossed his mind to me, I, I would agree with you. It shows some wisdom not to have not to have gone in that direction. Whether Hugh Jackson or any of these other guys works out or would have worked out remains to be seen. But to me, that was an interesting side note was that Chip Kelly didn't immediately spring to the forefront. Um, Adam Gase, obviously now the new head coach down at Miami. I, you know, I know he was one of the hot candidates or whatever. I, to me, he's just another one of those coordinator candidates that gets hot somebody has to be hot and he got to be the offensive coordinator for Peyton Manning. And granted Manning's been effusive in his praise and I have no reason to doubt any of that. Um, but I've seen that play occur on this stage any number of times over the past several decades. And so I just color me skeptical that it's always as easy as, well, this guy was unbelievable as a coordinator and therefore will be a, will be a great head coach. I just think it's such a totally different job 
that, that I don't know what to think. And I feel the same way about pretty much all the seven guys that we at least know that they interviewed. So um, w- when you look at what Gase brings versus what they ended up doing with Hugh Jackson, obviously two offensive minds that have had a lot of success, um, but both of them having had success with some awfully good players. And so I, I always struggle to attribute one way or the other to that. I tend to put more of it on players than coaches. Um, but, you know, look, both guys have very good players um, at key positions who will come out and tell you, this guy's a great coach. So having said all that, um, what did you think about Gase? And um, tell me your impressions of Jackson based on what you've seen. Gase kind of strikes me as another one of those guys that's kind of like Mike McCoy, kind of like Joe Philbin, who they just had before. You know, he's worked with these quarterbacks. The quarterbacks say that he's great. Uh, he's a young candidate. He's, it seems like he's an energetic guy. He's, you know, a great quarterback coach and, you know, quarterbacks win in the NFL nowadays. So I can't really blame Miami for going after him. But aside from that, I don't know a whole lot about him. But it just seems like all these quarterbacks, you know, Jay Cutler, Peyton Manning, they've talked him up. So that resulted in a head coaching candidacy. Um, We'll see. We'll see how that goes in Miami. I'm not too confident in Mike Tannenbaum down there, but we shall see. Um, as for Hugh Jackson, um, you know the Browns have gotten a lot of praise from the media since yesterday, since they made this hire. Um, I was kind of unconvinced throughout the process that that he was actually the Browns guy, but I was proven wrong. Uh, he was their number one choice. It seems it would be interested. It would be interesting to see how it would have gone if some of these other teams were out of the playoffs and the coordinators were, you know, unemployed like Jackson was. But nonetheless, I think they got a good candidate. Um, Jackson seems to be a very confident, um, collected. He's very um, assertive, I would say. But he's also he speaks from the heart wears his heart on the sleeve. Uh, like I told you yesterday, I watched that, that speech that he gave to his team um, the, the, on the game after Al, Al Davis passed away. And, you know, it's the kind of guy that he's not afraid to show emotion in front of his team. Um, I, think, I think guys are going to gravitate to him. I mean, they already do. We can see that from all the, you know, the tweets and all the messages that we've seen passed around from players that have played for him, players that know him. So I think that's that's exciting. Uh, I think players are going to want to play for him in Cleveland, um, and I'm just looking forward to see how, seeing how he does. Uh, looking at his Oakland tenure, seemed like he was starting off decent. You know, they were eight and eight. That's better than they've been. And and then Al Davis passed away. There was mismanagement. Uh, organization was very poor, and he got let go. So I'm excited to see him get this second chance and. I think it's cool that uh, that they hired a head coach that has some head coaching experience in the past because I think that that can really help, as we've seen with guys like Belichick, um, Andy Reid in K- Kansas City. I know that he did uh, really good things in, in Philadelphia, but I think that head coaching experience in the past helped him. And also uh, Pete Carroll in Seattle. You know, he, he failed his first time in the NFL, but, but he really learned a lot from that, from USC. He took it to Seattle and uh, applied it, and I'm just looking forward to seeing what Hugh Jackson does in Cleveland. Yeah, you know, 
if there's nothing else that can be said, it's that he's eminently qualified. This is the, he has the resume of a guy who is prepared to be a head coach. So we'll find out whether that is in fact the case. Um, I agree with you. I thought the year that he was the really the head coach in Oakland um, was pretty solid. You know, they, it's certainly the best they looked um, since those days when they were in the Super Bowl, uh, losing to their former coach. But uh, nevertheless small sample size and so it's hard to know really what what to think of all that I know some people are uh, reluctant because of the trade he made for Carson Palmer well number one and I don't have the details in front of me I'll get it before the next podcast because I actually have analyzed this before and came to the conclusion I just don't remember each detail of it but the bottom line is that trade was not nearly as bad in my view as a lot of people make it out to be but number two in retrospect it looks pretty smart I mean, Carson Palmer's been one of the better quarterbacks in the game uh, when healthy over the past couple of years. He's an MVP candidate this year. So I think, you know, all things being equal, you'd go back and say, well, look, if that's the Carson Palmer he was getting, that, that deal was really not, not so bad. So I, I look at that and think, you know, I'm not, I'm not concerned about that at all. Um, and especially, like you said, it was just a chaotic situation there in Oakland with, with Davis passing away. Hugh Jackson was basically there acting in the dark. And there are a lot of people... Um, not the least of which Amy Trask are on record talking about how great they think Hugh is and if their kid was a football player, they'd want him to play for Hugh. And if she was hiring for an NFL team, she'd want to hire Hugh. And, you know, Ross Tucker, Tucker said the same thing and Andrew Whitworth said the same thing and all guy, all kinds of guys are out there talking about Emory Hunt. Emory Hunt said the same thing. So, I, you know, I think there are a lot of people that think this is a really great hire, um, which lends some instant credibility to everything, right? You're, you're hopeful that a free agent might see it a little differently. You're excited that, you know, drafted players will get to be used in ways that make sense. Those kinds of things, one would think, um, would follow from this sort of decision, but it'll all have to play out. Um, schematically, just a little bit. I haven't gotten a chance to study it too deeply. I doubt you have either, but I know a few things about Hugh Jackson. Number one, I know he did, he's not married to a system the way some offensive coordinators are. He's got some core beliefs. Uh, to me, the, the thing that really stands out is, number one, he does insist on running the football, and he insists on doing it usually um, sort of a, you know, it's a manpower system, meaning there are going to be a lot of pulling offensive linemen. And quite frankly, I got to think he looked at this roster and thought, man, I can do some things with the offensive line on this roster because these guys can all get out and run. Um, and if he can turn Cam Irving into somebody who can play, that's another guy that can get out and run. Uh, there, there does look to be some hope that that Brown's failure to run the ball uh, should, should go away because historically speaking, Hugh Jackson's been awfully successful in that regard. Um, in terms of the pass game, he's creative. Uh, that, that's the best way I would put it. He's creative, and he finds ways to get the ball into the hands of the guys it needs to be in their hands. Um, you know, you, you'll see those formations where he's got trips on either side. You'll see formations where he's throwing to, you know, offensive tackles. Um, so it's going to be fun to watch. It's going to be AFC North in nature. And that's, I think, another benefit of the hire is he's going to know his opponents really well already. I think that's useful. I think that's helpful information. Um, and I think it allows for less of a learning curve, um, for a new head coach. And then lastly, I'd say, um, Let's hope, I mentioned the free agency angle, I would sure not mind were he to bring Marvin Jones with him. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I was a big fan of Jones coming out of college, and I remember that you were too. 
Um, yeah, I think Hugh Jackson's just the type of guy that he'll build around what his players can do. You know, that's the kind of scheme he's going to run. He doesn't have a set, you know, West Coast offense or um, anything like that. It's it's all just what he believes his players are great at doing. He's going to build around that. Uh, you saw it this year in Cincinnati. He got the most out of a bunch of guys. Uh, Tyler Eifert, Andy Dalton, uh, Giovanni Bernard, they all had big years this year. And I think a lot of that had to do with Hugh Jackson. Also, you know, A.J. McCarron uh, brought the Bengals within a few seconds of beating the Steelers. You know, I think there's something to be said about that. While the Steelers don't have a great defense, still, it says a lot about Hugh Jackson that he prepared A.J. McCarron to that point. Uh, I think it's exciting that that the Browns now have a head coach who's known as being a quarterback developer. Um, I don't think I don't think it was ideal to have a coach that you know he's going to come in day one. And he's just like, okay, we want to take everything off the quarterback. Um, I don't think Hughes going to be that way, like Patton was. Uh, Hughes going to want to you know develop the quarterback, put everything he can on the quarterback, and. Obviously, he's going to use that running game to take take some pressure off as well. But uh, I think it's just exciting to have a guy that's highly qualified for the position. And I'm I'm very intrigued to see how they move forward. Yeah, and and we should see a bunch of things within the coming weeks. Obviously, he's got to assemble a staff. One would think that's coming uh, in the next couple of days, at least for the major coordinator positions. Um, and you know, he certainly promised great things. So we'll see how he delivers. I know that when he was in Oakland, his idea for a permanent defensive coordinator was Jack Del Rio, who's now the head coach there. Uh, but Del Rio is a pretty accomplished defensive coordinator. So it'll be curious to see what kinds of people are lining up to join Hugh Jackson in Cleveland to coach with him. Uh, and then of course the obvious question, who's going to be pulling the trigger? Who's going to be the quarterback? And I, I, I mean, Look, I know what he said. I think he's paying at lip service. I don't think there's any chance Johnny Manziel's going to be his guy. Um, and, in fact, I think it's more than likely he's not going to be on the roster. Um, the rest of it, I'll just wait and see. I mean, I think you know you've got a viable bridge guy in Josh McCown who will probably get hurt at some juncture. And so it's good that you've got Austin Davis in the room if you need him. Um, both guys under contract. Uh, so, to me, the real question becomes, are they – enough interested in the guys in this draft to pull the trigger on the quarterback. And the answer to that remains to me totally to be seen. Obviously, it stands to reason that if they are in love with one, they would use the number two pick on one. Now, a lot of us, and I'll put myself in this category, I won't speak for you, I don't know how you feel about it yet. Uh, A lot of us are skeptical, at least, that any of the quarterbacks in this draft warrants the number two pick, especially if it's transposed against maybe getting a Joey Bosa or somebody like that. Um, but there are those that will tell you that Jared Goff is the absolutely obvious pick there, and he ought to go. I, I personally, if you're going to make me take a shot on a quarterback in this draft so far based on what I've seen, I'm a little more inclined to look at, the, at Carson Wentz. Um, it's, a, it's, a longer, it's a longer projection, and so probably the riskier play. I, I am not here to argue with somebody that Jared Goff is not going to be a competent NFL quarterback. I suspect he probably will. Um, but that's how I feel about it. Uh, you know, taking him at number two feels steep to me, and I've seen most of his games out here in the West Coast. Um, I, I, he's clearly got a bunch of skills and a lot of the tools you're looking for. So I'm not here to tell somebody they're going to end up wrong. I just, I, I'm personally not feeling it quite up there. So you, you look at that situation and you think, well, 
it's a good thing you hired a head coach who knows what he wants, presumably, and has acted on what he wanted before and has shown that he was right in some ways. I mean, you could argue about the amount of compensation he sent from Oakland to Cincinnati for a Carson Palmer who we have to remember at that point had just quit on his football team and who hadn't been an MVP candidate the way he has been in recent years. Um, But it does start to tell you that Hugh Jackson has some idea of what's going to work for him and guys that can play. And so from that standpoint, um, you know, I'm excited. This is a guy who knows what he wants and then knows how to get what he needs out of what he wants. Yeah, I'm just looking forward to seeing quarterbacks being ready to play. I think that was something we saw this year that we haven't seen so much in the past. Uh, the past few years, before this year, it just felt like quarterbacks weren't always, you know, coached, developed, uh, whatever, however you want to put it. And I thought that this year with Flip, Kevin O'Connell, I thought the quarterbacks were well coached. I think that's something we're going to see in the fu- into the future with Hugh Jackson. And that that's something that I think everybody should be very excited about because you can't win without at least competent quarterback play in the NFL. And if he can get out of, you know, if McCown has to play, Austin Davis has to play, hopefully they don't have to play. But if they do have to play, as long as we see those guys playing like competent NFL quarterbacks that aren't guys that should be sitting on the couch, I think that's a lot better than we've had at times in the past. Uh, As for the quarterbacks in the draft, I really haven't watched enough to uh, give a take yet on any of them Uh, at this point. I would lean toward taking Bosa too, if he's there, and uh, trying to get a quarterback, maybe trade up into the first round or maybe get whoever's there at 32. But um, that's just how I lean now, and I have to watch a lot more of these guys. Yeah, same and here. It's an I initial more, impression. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As I watch more, I might feel that one of them's hard to pass on it too, and I might change my opinion. But that's just the way I'm leaving it point well, and and frankly if if Hugh Jackson and the personnel department come to the conclusion that they got to have one of them at two I'm going to feel pretty decent that that's not going to be a bad decision so um yep. we'll see uh, then again as everyone uh, must price into all of this discussion it is the Browns so we'll see how it all goes <laughs> um you know uh, it, gosh there was something else I wanted to mention it was about um, the new head coach, but oh, I know what it was. It, you mentioned that it was different than something we'd had. I, the other thing I would say is it's it's funny how often NFL teams hire after firing one guy hire almost his exact opposite, just almost like it's the the equal and opposite reaction to the guy they had just gotten rid of. And from from the you know emotions on his sleeve, energy standpoint, you couldn't get a guy that's more different from what you see from Petten uh, than you do from Hugh Jackson. Hugh Jackson is upbeat. He is energetic. He is enthusiastic. And I'm not saying that, that Petten isn't enthusiastic. I think Petten probably has an enormous passion for what he does and it just comes out differently. Um, but you know, you can feel Hugh Jackson's energy coming off of him when he's in his presser. You can feel it when he walks into the building, you know, you watch that stuff and uh, you know, some of it's a little corny and hokey I thought, but at the same time, you know where he is. You know, you're not just sitting there going, is this guy aware of the situation he's in? <laughs> you know you know quite well that Hugh Jackson is aware of his situation and aware of just how desperately everyone around him wants him to succeed and how frustrating it is when, um, when it's not obvious that he does know that. So I, I think it's going to be at least refreshing for a while <laughs> from that standpoint. So I'm looking forward to the off-season updates 
um, because of that stuff. But we'll see how it all plays out. I don't have a ton more for this particular episode. This was sort of our initial reaction to these first big changes. I'm excited. I'm, I'm just excited that they're trying something kind of unique and that they've hired people that I think are, are definitely smart. And so I will leave it at that. Did you have anything further before we let the good people go this week? Nope, you covered everything. There you have it, folks. This has been episode 39 of the Browns Note podcast. If you'd be so kind to follow the podcast at the Browns Note, follow Brendan Leister at Brendan Leister on Twitter, and you can follow me, Ryan Burns, at FTBL Sickness. We'll be back uh, sometime soon. It may or may not be one week exactly. We'll see kind of how things progress with the hirings, uh, but we'll be getting close to you know, free agency, and of course the All-Star games are coming through, and hopefully there will be some rumors about guys that we're looking at and all that. So we'll keep talking off-season additions. We'll keep talking draft as it heads closer. And uh, of course, sooner rather than later, we'll be talking Browns football yet again. With that, we leave you. Thanks for listening to the Browns Note, everybody. Catch you next time. Woof!